Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome to Speaking Out for the Blind. I'm Brian McCallan. Encyclopedia Britannica says that a series of earthquakes occurred in the Christchurch and Canterbury Plains regions of New Zealand in 2010 and 2011. The magnitudes of the quakes ranged from 6.3 to 7.1. Many buildings were damaged and hundreds of people were lost, found injured, or dead. Medical Express reports that two Massey University senior lecturers of public health, Dr. Gretchen Good and Dr. Suzanne Phibbs, have just recently published a study of New Zealand visually impaired residents and their challenges and experiences during the 2010 and 11 Christchurch earthquakes. Both Gretchen and Suzanne are here with us to talk about their findings and what you may want to do if the next big one comes. Hello, everyone. Hi, Brian. Hi, Brian. Hi, Gretchen and Suzanne. Tell us a little bit about your roles as senior lecturers in the School of Public Health at Massey University in the town of Palmerston, North New Zealand. Okay, I'll go first. This is Suzanne. I have a PhD in sociology. I work at the School of Public Health in Palmerston North and I teach in the area of health inequalities and in relation to Māori health in relation to the indigenous population of New Zealand. My research interests include uh, women's health, disability and Māori community resilience. Brian, I'm Gretchen Good, and you might be able to tell from my accent that I'm originally from the U.S. I'm an orientation and mobility certified instructor and a vision rehabilitation therapist, and I came to New Zealand to work for the Royal New Zealand Foundation of the Blind. But for the past 20 years, I've been here at Massey University researching and teaching in the areas of rehabilitation and disability. My primary interest has mostly been about blindness and vision impairment. And you were visually impaired yourself, Gretchen, but you got your sight back. How did you get your full vision back? I heard it involved more than 20 operations. Yes, well, I'm a long-term diabetic. was diagnosed at about age 7. And at age 19, I had a rather sudden loss of vision due to diabetic retinopathy. And then there was a long series of medical issues like cataracts, detached retina, and lots of treatments. They did manage to preserve my vision after about nine years. I had a rather dramatic return of vision. I'm still vision impaired, but I have a lot of good, useful vision now that they were able to preserve through laser treatments. That's amazing. Suzanne, how did you and Gretchen decide to conduct and publish your study called Disoriented and Immobile, the Experience of People with Visual Impairments, during and after the Christchurch, New Zealand 2010, and 2011 earthquakes? Well, of course, Gretchen's my colleague here at Massey University, and because she teaches orientation and mobility, I used to see her in the corridor teaching people how to guide and teach people with vision impairments. Uh, using a white cane. Christchurch is my hometown. After the September 10 earthquake, I was looking at vision on the television and there were all these roadblocks and barriers that had been put up around cordoned off areas and around buildings that had been damaged. Sitting there thinking, gee, it must be really hard for people who are vision impaired to be able to negotiate this environment. I went and saw Gretchen and I said, let's do some research on how they're coping with 
the aftermath of the earthquake. We got Massey University approval, we got a little bit of funding and we went down to Christchurch. We started the research uh, initially by interviewing 12 people who were vision impaired and living in Christchurch at the time of the September earthquake. So you wanted to look at how the visually impaired were coping with these series of major earthquakes. And I understand that Carrie Williamson, she's the research assistant for the New Zealand's Ministry of Justice. She co-authored the study. How did you pick Carrie to co-author the publication? I'll start. This is Gretchen here. Carrie was a student here and involved in our rehabilitation studies program. She applied for our our summer scholarship which Suzanne and I put up looking for a student to assist with this research. She eventually went on to do her master's thesis on a series of earthquakes and the impact it had on those in recovery from alcoholism. That was after the September earthquake, which was in 2010, and that was a 7.1 earthquake, which occurred about 20 miles west of Christchurch. And at the time, Christchurch people felt like they'd dodged a bullet because nobody had died and, and not very many buildings had been damaged. Kerry was in the... February earthquake in 2011, and that happened on February the 22nd. That was a major earthquake that was centered right under the city, only 11 kilometers deep. In terms of thinking about the upthrust from that earthquake, it's the most severe ground shaking on the Macaulay scale that's ever been recorded. I read testimony from one elderly person who talked about being thrown out of his chair in that earthquake and hitting the ceiling. That's how big the upthrust was from that earthquake. And, and so Kerry lost her home, and so she ended up coming and staying with me in Palmerston North for six weeks while she, she got her life sorted out following that earthquake. That was a big upthrust indeed. So you had 12 visually impaired participants participate yep. in the study. They talked to you about their experiences after the September 2010 Christchurch earthquake, as you mentioned. Yes. Now, seven of them were interviewed again after the February 2011 quake, and you also picked three blind foundation employees to participate. How did you find these people for the study? I mean, how did you know that they were a part of these quakes, and what criteria was used to select them? Well, you have to remember, too, that New Zealand is uh, rather a small country, and we have a good sense of community. I have had involvement over the years with the Association of Blind Citizens of New Zealand, which is a consumer organization here, similar to the NFB or the ACB. We contacted them to see their Christchurch branch, to see if they could help us find volunteers to participate in the research. And then it was easy enough to ask the Foundation of the Blind if they had had any staff members who were happy to talk to us about our research. So I see how that worked. Suzanne, this research is the first of its kind on the globe. Why is this the case, and what was the importance of doing the earthquake study? It's the first because previously research that's been done with vision impaired people, they've been incorporated into other research in the general area of disability. There are very few studies that just focus on the needs and experiences of vision impaired people. What makes this research unique is that we interviewed the 12 people in September and we finished those interviews in February, just before the, the major earthquake in February. And then A year later, we went back to those original participants and re-interviewed seven of them about how a year of earthquakes had impacted on their lives. So it was one of the first studies to track 
the experiences of vision impaired people through a major series of natural disasters. If you think about their experiences, Christchurch in that time frame from September 2011 to the beginning of 2012 had 12,000 earthquakes. Your research highlighted several areas, technology and communication, orientation and mobility, health, personal support, agency support, rebuilding independence, rehabilitation, coping, and yes, resilience. Speaking of resilience, you found that the study's participants demonstrated community spirit and the abilities to problem solve. Out of the participants, show these two abilities, the two series of abilities, during the two series of earthquakes. If I tell you the story of, of one of our participants, after the September earthquake, her and her, her partner, they, they had actually had their car full of camping equipment, barbecue and all of that stuff for an emergency. When the September earthquake occurred, they went to the, the most badly damaged areas of Christchurch and made cups of tea for the residents over there. So she did that. That was a really good example of a, a vision-impaired people contributing, helping people through the earthquakes. ABC or the Association of Blind Citizens was a really good organisation to access participants through because they had a telephone tree that they operated all of the time and so that telephone tree became an emergency contact mechanism. It was adapted for that. So they um, phoned each other and they gave each other information and provided support in that way. That ended up working really, really well but that was existing prior to the earthquakes with them to be able to utilise that service. The vision impaired people that we talked to got very experienced about coping with earthquakes. They got to know their neighbours, got prepared for an emergency. So if you think about prior to the September 2010 earthquake, 20% of disabled people in Christchurch had adequate emergency equipment and only 12% had an emergency plan. After the September earthquake, 88% of disabled people in Christchurch got prepared, they got equipment, they got a supplies, they put in place an emergency plan, they got important documentations for medications and insurance and things like that in a safe place that they could access easily. They really did work to ensure that they would have the best chance of maintaining their independence following an earthquake. Now um, there was a good amount of preparation it sounds like, but do you think there could have been more done to help the visually impaired? further prepare or help more visually impaired be prepared for earthquakes based on your results? One of the main messages we want to get out to people is that don't count on agencies or civil defense authorities to come to your rescue. You have to be prepared yourself. All of us as individuals, we have to do our best to be prepared to take care of ourselves and our loved ones in the instance of a disaster. And we all would like to believe we're independent, but sometimes being independent means knowing who and when to ask for help. What we've learned from this research is we advise everybody to get to know your neighbors. Those are the people who will be helpful to you in the event of a disaster. It's not an agency. It's not necessarily civil defense authorities. They might come through, but it might take three days. It's your neighbors who are going to be helpful to you in an earthquake. And as our blind participants also showed us, they were helpful to their neighbors too. What about radio and TV stations? Can listening listening to or watching them also help 
the visually impaired prepare for earthquakes and natural disasters? Yes and no. Um, we have public service messages that say, you know, in an earthquake you drop, cover and hold, which means that you drop down under a desk, cover your head and hold on to the legs of the desk in order to protect yourself from things falling on top of you in an earthquake. Well, those um, messages are made for able-bodied people, vision-impaired people who might also have medical conditions and can't move quickly. There's no kind of general public service messages that are aimed at them. They have to go and find this information themselves about what they should do in an, in an earthquake. So that's not equivalent to able-bodied people. A lot more work could be done around that. I think that the emergency services, like the people who are operating welfare centres, probably are not going to know how to deal with people who are vision impaired, won't be prepared for them. So vision impaired people need to be prepared to advocate for themselves, tell the people at the welfare centres what they need and what supports they need and how they can keep them safe what they need in order to be able to cope in a wealthy center. And get to know them and make friends so they can help yes. you when these disasters happen. That's right. Now we're going to get into a couple more stories now that you mentioned home, Suzanne. One of the research participants who wanted to remain anonymous said that during the earthquakes, she heard her dishes falling and breaking in not only the kitchen, but the living room. She didn't know what to do. She'd been told that during an earthquake, it was best to stand under the doorpost. But she couldn't get to the doorpost. Gretchen, tell us more about her story and how the participants survived the earthquakes without getting to the doorpost and what she's doing to be safer from future earthquakes. Well, a lot of the participants did what comes naturally and they stayed in bed when the earthquake, when the overnight earthquake happened or the four, four o'clock in the morning happened. And it turns out that's not terrible advice anyways. There's some mythology about what you should do in an earthquake and one is to get under a doorway. That's a mythology because doorways tend to be no stronger than other parts of a house. And there is also a door attached to them that could swing and hurt you. <laughs> so that's a myth. The other one is the uh, triangle of safety, which made its way around the Internet a lot in recent years. It turns out that is not a recommendation from civil defense authorities. What we are told to do is drop, cover, and hold although that needs to be adapted depending on your circumstances. If you use a wheelchair or you have severe arthritis or can't move quickly, that might not be your best bet. But you should stay relatively close to where you are and not move more than about three meters or about nine feet. You should pretty much stay where you are. You should stay indoors. Some people have an instinct to run outside in an earthquake, but that puts you at risk for falling trees and glass and building bits. So the advice is to stay indoors until you know it's safe to exit. And you should be next to an interior wall, away from windows and things that might be flying around, and, and protect your head and neck. And if you're in your bedroom, don't have anything above your bed that can fall on you, like a, a mirror or a picture or a bookcase. So if you've actually got a bedroom where you've got something above your bed, remove it, because that could come down the corner of it, could hit you on the head, and you'll have a nasty injury or maybe even a concussion. The other thing, too, is, is, is if you're not steady on your feet, then you're best to remain sitting or in bed. 
And so I would recommend that people have a pillow on their couch where they sit or near where they sit so that they can do um, the turtle position like you do in the emergency brace on an aeroplane and put pillow over their head and neck to protect them from anything that might fall on them. Now we got to talk about guide dogs. One of the survivors in your study by the name of Bonnie, she said this, quote, Oh, the dog, the poor dog. He was shivering. He shook until about 10 o'clock the next morning. He just shook. I gave him his breakfast, and he couldn't eat all his breakfast. What did he eat? He brought up. So he was really in a bad way. End quote. So it must have been tough for Bonnie Sky Dog here to undergo the shaking. Tell us more about this experience and what guide dog users are finding that they need to do in order to help their canines cope during and after earthquakes. The Blind Foundation really did respond to this problem when they recognized that guide dogs were really impacted, and they did go out and provide support to guide dog users in the area. They used a lot of rescue remedy to help the dogs, and they had to do reassessments to find out if the dogs could continue working. It's just something to be aware of, and and now everybody is more aware that that's a potential issue. We have learned from these earthquakes. I myself have an assistance dog, and in November, just past, November 2016, New Zealand had 7.8 earthquake in Kaikoura, down not too far from Christchurch, and it had a large impact up in Wellington here on the North Island. Lots of shaking, up to 120 seconds of shaking, went on and on and on. I had to go down to Wellington for work a week after that very large earthquake, and I opted to leave Kaz, my assistant's dog, at home here because I didn't want her skills and abilities to be compromised if she experienced more earthquakes with me down in Wellington. So these are some of the lessons we've learned. And also, you know, if your dog is really placid and, you know, is is really helpful for you, but, you know, in an earthquake, some dogs are going to try and run. We had one of our participants who, every time there was an earthquake, his usually loyal and rock-fast guide dog would try and run. And so he had to spend the time trying to restrain his guide dog rather than get out of danger and away from falling objects. That's something that you need to think about, that all the dogs are going to react differently as well. And those dogs can get scared during those earthquakes, but how are the guide dogs being trained in guide dog schools around the world to help their users deal with earthquakes and and cope with earthquakes in any way? That's a really good question, Brian. I'm not aware of that. Assistance dogs can be trained to be helpful in times of crisis, like if somebody is having a seizure or needs to be alerted that they need medication or is having a panic attack. But generally, guide dogs are not necessarily trained to deal with a crisis. They're not expected to encounter a crisis like that. So it's a really good question, and it's something that maybe could be addressed. This is great advice. Gretchen and Suzanne, how can our listeners read your study? The study has been published. It was published in November of 2016 in the Journal of Vision Impairment and Blindness, Journal of Visual Impairment and Blindness. There was a follow-up published In January of this year, January 2017, uh, we did a 
bit of a follow-up piece in the Journal of Visual Impairment and Blindness. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, just final bits of advice, what people can do to be pre- be prepared. This came from our participants, is to have a radio, have batteries handy, learn how to text, because texting can... You can sometimes get through on a text when you can't get through on a phone call, and that proved to be important to some people who were under rubble. None of our research participants, but other people were in that situation. Um, Have two people that you are prepared to call to check on in the event of a disaster, and have arranged for two people to check on you in the event of a disaster. Get to know your neighbors. Keep your shoes under your bed. Keep a flashlight on your doorknob. Have enough food, medicine, and water for yourself and your family and any pets that will last for three days at least. And figure out how to be prepared with a homemade toilet if you need one. All right. Gretchen and Suzanne, your research truly documents the experiences of the visually impaired and what they've had to do to survive earthquakes. It also warns us to be prepared for the next big, big quake. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Brian. Before we go, I welcome your comments on this program. Just visit and like me on Facebook at Speaking Out for the Blind, or follow me on Twitter at Speak Out Blind, or Speak Out for the Blind. You can also check out my website, that's speakingoutfortheblind.weebly.com. More information on today's show is posted there. Just look under the list of episodes and show news tab. My new email address is speakout at acbradio.org, and my show archive is at acbradio.org slash speaking dash out dash four dash the dash blind. Please note that there is a link located at the top half of the page and below the heading that says Home Speaking Out for the Blind, where you can subscribe to the podcast feed and listen to Speaking Out for the Blind shows ranging from episode 94 to the present. That's all for this edition of Speaking Out for the Blind. Thanks for listening, and remember to speak out. Here at ACB Radio Mainstream, we are always working to improve the quality of our programming. If you have any feedback about anything you have heard here on ACB Radio Mainstream, please let us know by sending an email to support at acbradio.org. That's support at acbradio.org. You are listening to ACB Radio Mainstream, connecting the blind community. Greetings, precious humans. This is Laura Legendary, host of a new show called Legendary Insights. Poet and playwright Neil Marcus said, Disability is not a brave struggle or courage in the face of adversity. Disability is an art. It's an ingenious way to live. I couldn't agree more. I'll be with you every other month to talk about the issues of the day and to share ways in which we can all live our best, most ingenious life. Join me for my legendary insights beginning in April on ACB Radio. That's ACB Radio Mainstream Legendary Insights with Laura Legendary. Thursdays updating and alternating each month with Larry Turnbull's show Handy Around the House at 8 p.m. Eastern.
California, Florida, Iowa, Texas, guide dog users, students, IT professionals, government employees. The American Council of the Blind has members in all 50 states and is actively engaged in a wide variety of activities. We advocate for the education, employment, and social inclusion of all blind and visually impaired Americans. We publish a monthly magazine. We hold an annual conference and convention and operate a multi-channel internet radio station. Check us out at acb.org. Together, we can do anything. This is ACB Radio, connecting the blind community. Connecting the blind community.